The following audio is from Missio Day Church in Asheville, North Carolina. We exist for maturing and multiplying disciples in Asheville and beyond for the glory of God. For more resources from Missio Day or to partner with us on mission, visit mdcavl.org. Uh, if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 3. Ephesians chapter 3. Uh, there are Bibles in the seats there, uh, the little, I guess, tray thing under the seat. If you need one of those, it'll be on the screens as well, but it'd be great for you to have a copy of God's Word in front of you. Last week, we started this brand new series called The Dearest Place, uh, which is maybe a little bit of an odd title, but it comes from a line in a sermon that was preached by Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Spurgeon was a pastor uh, in London in the 1800s, and uh, he preached a sermon actually from 2 Corinthians uh, 8, I believe it was, but uh, in it he said this. I'll just read a portion of the quote that I read last week. He said, still imperfect as it is, the church is the dearest place on earth to us. It is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners who are saved by grace, who, though they are saved, are still sinners and in need of all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep. It is the home for Christ's family. And so we are looking at the, the nature of the church. The, last week we looked at the purpose of the church, and what we saw there is that the purpose of the church is the same as the purpose of individuals, which is the glory of God. We exist to glorify God as individuals and as a people. In other words, we exist to display imperfectly, because we're sinners, something of the beauty and the glory and the perfection of God. As we worship Him in spirit and in truth, as we love one another in His name, as we love our neighbor and extend the grace of God and and His kindness to others, we are displaying imperfectly but tangibly something of His beauty and greatness and perfection. And honestly, the weirder and crazier the world gets, the more important it becomes that we are the church in the world. Now, I heard a pastor say the other day, and I I agree with him, uh, the world has always been crazy. The world's always going to be crazy. Like the world gonna world, right? They're just, it's gonna be that way. But what's really sad is when the church stops becoming the church. When we think that this is all there is to being the church. As important as this gathering is, as important as it is, we are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. We'll talk about that just briefly. This is extremely important for us, but this is not the end all be all being the church. This is one slice of it. And so today, we're going to look at the power of the church, or really better titled, the power for the church. And I realized before we even get into it that the word power uh, has, it's a loaded word in our culture right now, right? Many of us have seen abuses of power um, in our workplaces, in our families, even um, to our shame in the church. And so the word power has has negative connotation in many ways. And yet, we also know how terrible and awful it is to be without power, to be powerless, right? We advocate for those who are powerless because they uh, cannot fend for themselves. And so, I I hope you'll stick with me. We're going to see that the power that God gives is not maybe what you would think it is, Um, but we're going to pick up here in chapter 3 of Ephesians, starting in verse 14. I'm going to read the portion of Scripture we'll be in, and then I'll say, this is the Word of God, and then you can say, thanks be to God, and then I'll pray 
and then I'll preach at you. So here we go. Ephesians chapter 3, starting in verse 14. Paul says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, it is a privilege and a joy to come to you in prayer. We are grateful to be your children, those of us who have surrendered our lives to the Lordship of Christ, who have received the finished work of Jesus with empty hands. We have the right to be called the children of God by the blood of Jesus, and so we are. What an immense privilege to be called the children of God. And yet, we recognize that we often live in this world like orphans who do not comprehend the love of God for us. And so, therefore, do not extend the love of God beyond us to the world. And so, Lord, would you help us now as we open your word in the presence of your spirit, we invite you, Holy Spirit, to come here and to do what only you can do in the hearts of your people to encourage, to challenge, to rebuke, to exhort, to comfort, to transform. May we see something today of the beauty and glory of Jesus that is transformative for us. And may that extend far beyond the four walls of this physical structure for your glory and for the good of your people. Holy Spirit, please empower me as I preach this word that it might be clear, concise, courageous, and humble for your glory and for the good of these people. And I pray this in the beautiful name of Jesus. And everyone said, amen. amen. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and give you my three points right now so you can write them down if you're a note taker, and then we'll come back to them. But I keep forgetting to do this uh, as we go through. So um, the three things I want to point you to in the text this morning are, number one, the need for power, okay? Secondly, the purpose of power. And then finally, the source of power, the need for power, the purpose for power of power, and the source of power. So firstly, uh, look here in verses 14 to 16 at the need for power. Paul is praying. He says, for this reason, I bow my knees before the Father. So he is praying for the Christians in Ephesus. Why? Because it's hard to be a Christian in Ephesus, okay? Um, Ephesus, if you remember in our study of the book of Acts, 
We saw in Acts chapter 19 that Paul comes into the city. He proclaims the gospel. People give their lives to Christ. They start repenting, meaning they're turning away from themselves and their sin. They start giving up their idolatry and their uh, spiritual practices. Remember, they're burning all these books, uh, uh, incantation books and witchcraft books. And the people who are in charge of or whose, whose business is to supply those idols, they are none too happy. And it starts a riot in the city, which actually puts Paul's life in danger. Okay? Ephesus was a city that was very spiritually pluralistic, but also intolerant of Christianity. It was a licentious city. It was, um, it was a port city. So any, any vice that you can imagine giving yourself to was available freely in the city of Ephesus. It was a carnal place. It was a materialistic place. And it was full of cultural pride and full of division over ethnic and religious differences. And yet Paul had a conviction that the church of Jesus Christ was called to be a distinct, countercultural, otherworldly presence in that city. And so when Paul prays, he does not pray for their outward circumstances to change. He prays that God would transform them inwardly, that they might be that countercultural, otherworldly presence in the city of Ephesus. And so he says, for this reason... I bow my knees before the Father. Now, without context, you wouldn't know what that reason was. And I'll just briefly catch you up to speed. In Acts, uh, excuse me, Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says that before the foundations of the world, he chose those in him to be holy and blameless. This is an encouragement to these believers who were struggling, who were under oppression and hardship, that, that when they endured that hardship, they could be reminded, you're not alone here. Remember, God chose you before the foundations of the world. You belong to him. He is with you. He's for you. They were chosen before the foundation of the world to be holy, set apart, blameless. Chapter 2, he says to them, remember that you were dead in your sins and trespasses. You were enemies of God, but you were made alive by the grace of Jesus Christ. He goes on to say in chapter 2, you were aliens and strangers, right? You were, you were without God and without hope in the world. You were divided amongst one another, Jew and Gentile, right? These, these two groups did not get along. And yet because of Jesus, you were made into citizens. You were made saints. You were actually made into a family. The dividing wall of hostility broken down, and now you're being built together. He actually goes on in the end of chapter 2 to say you're being built together into a temple, a spiritual dwelling place for God by his spirit. So it's almost as if those, all those bricks in the wall are being torn down, and out of that wall comes a beautiful temple. And then in chapter 3, he says that when we display our unity in Christ, when we come together and welcome one another as Christ welcomed us, we, we are actually putting on display the manifold wisdom of God, not just to the world, but to the spiritual powers and principalities. That's amazing. This is bigger than just human eyeballs and human ears. This goes to the heavenlies. This goes to all of those powers of darkness that are at play in the world. And so he says, because of these reasons, for these reasons, I bow my knees. This is important because Jews did not pray on their knees. They prayed standing up. You've seen the, the wailing wall, right? Uh, in Jerusalem, they, they, they pray at the wailing wall. They might rock back and forth, but Paul says, this is so urgent and so desperate. He gets down on his knees. I get on my knees and I pray for your people that they, 
that they would, what? I, I, I bow my knees to the Father from, from whom every family in heaven on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. He says, you are, I bow my knees before the one from whom all families on the earth are named. There are a lot of people in this world who think they're self-made people. Ain't nobody self-made. <laughs> it's like you do a paternity test, right, for every person in the world. Who's the father? God. <laughs> right? He's the creator and sustainer of all things, which means creator and sustainer. Everybody do this for me real quick. Take a deep breath in. A gift from the all-knowing, all-powerful, sovereign God. He determines whether you take the next one. Amen. I pray, it's like, it's like Paul says in, um, in Romans 11. Let me read this for you really quickly. Um, Romans 11, he says, <clears throat> Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. You can't scrutinize God. You can't bring an idea to him that he's like, holy me, I never thought about that. <laughs> how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable are his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Who's given God advice? Or who has given him a gift that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's, he is the father, the creator, sustainer of all things. He is the only one with true power and wealth. The scripture says that he owns the cattle on a thousand hills. Maybe in more modern language, we'd say he owns short-term rentals in a thousand cities. <laughs> He's just stupid rich, Right? And so he comes before that God, the all-knowing, all-powerful one who has stupid, crazy riches according to the, the, the riches of his glory in Christ. And he says, what does he pray for? I pray that they would be strengthened with power. Now notice, he does not ask that God would give them more of their power. What kind of power is it? God's power. I pray that you would be strengthened with power. I lost my place. I mean, not Philippians. That's not where we want today. That you may be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. This is the second time Paul has actually prayed for this kind of power for his people. Uh, in Ephesians chapter 1, he's praying that, they, that they'd have the eyes of their heart open to see the hope to which they've been called, the glorious riches of their inheritance and the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead. So he's saying the same power that raised the dead human body of Jesus and animated him back to life, I pray that that power would fill you in your inner being, would strengthen you. This is what God had promised all along. All the way back to like Ephesians, or excuse me, uh, Ezekiel 36, he says, there's coming a day when I am going to put my power, put my spirit in human people. And they're like, there's no way. 
Like we've seen the glory of God. We've seen the power of God. We know about the temple. We know about the Holy of Holies and the ark. And there's no way you can put the, the fullness of God in a person. He says, no, 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 no. It's like, it's like this valley of dry bones. I'm going to have to reanimate and bring to life. And I'll pull out the heart of stone and put in a heart of flesh. And then I will fill that heart with my power and with my glory. And you will be full of the fullness of God. Why do we need this power? Because becoming a united people where all of those secondary issues that, that so often divide us, becoming one new humanity, which is what he says in Ephesians 2, that after that dividing wall of hum, uh, is broken down, that he's building one new man, one new human family together. That call, that charge is so daunting and impossible. It's a work that only God can do. I mean, let's be, okay, let's be honest for just a minute. I know we're in church. Let's be honest. We don't even get along with the people we love the most some of the time. Okay, don't raise your hand unless you really need to be honest and transparent right now. But how many of us this week, how many of us this week said or thought something atrocious about the person that we've covenanted our life to? How many of you have lost your absolute God-loving mind on your children? And yet they're the ones you love. They're the ones you would take a bullet for. You would do anything for, and they just get on your last nerve. Okay, so if we can't even get along with the people that we love the most, how on earth will we ever welcome the weak? How on earth will we ever um, open our lives and our homes and our calendars and our hearts to people who do not think like us, who do not... Uh, share what we hold most dear. If the church is God's plan A for the world, and it is, there is no plan B, by the way. If we are called to display something of the beauty and the glory and the perfection of God to the world, he must, he must infuse us with other worldly power so that the outcome is non-ignorable. We cannot settle for status quo. We cannot settle for only loving those whom we would love anyway if we didn't have Jesus. There's no power in that. And so we need power. We need otherworldly Holy Spirit power in our lives. But why? Why do we need... You guys with me so far? Okay. Why do we need this kind of power? He goes on to answer the question for us in verse 17. The purpose of this power. Look at this, verse 17. So that, so you need power. Why? So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. What is this power for? You'd expect him to say, well, the mission of God, right? So that other people would know about Jesus, so that the kingdom of God can extend to the ends of the earth. But, and that is a byproduct, but that's not where he goes here. He says, what is this power for? It's, it's power so that Christ will dwell in your hearts. Now, if you're a follower of Jesus, you'd say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't Christ already dwell in my heart? Like, I thought that was part of the deal, you know? I surrender. He felt, I have the Holy Spirit 
dwelling in me. I have the presence of God in me now. And I would say, yes, that's true. Here's the difference. Here's what I think the difference is. How many of you know there's a difference between a house and a home? Okay. So Christ has, to dwell means to take up residence within, okay? So Christ has come to take up residence within our souls, but there's some renovations that need to happen. Um, my, wife, my wife and I have been in our house now 10 years, and um, when we first bought our house, uh, we were house poor because our mortgage doubled. You know, some of you know what that's like. And so we didn't do much at the beginning, and then over the years we've been able to remodel and we've, we've redone our kitchen. But when we first redid the kitchen, uh, it was like dark wallpaper, like from the 90s, you know, awesome. Uh, dark blue with like pink roses and flowers and stuff on it, and then dark wood cabinets and one light, you know, and dark blue countertops that were just so special. And so <laughs> we started to renovate, right? We we're like, we're just going to do the basics. We're going to uh, I think the tile has started to peel up, so we're going to put down a new floor. We're going to paint the cabinets, brighten it up a little bit, put a new light. And so we go to pull the wallpaper off. And underneath that 90s wallpaper was 80s wallpaper. <laughs> and underneath the 80s wallpaper was 70s wallpaper. Kid you not. And under that was 60s, and under that was the glorious 1950s wallpaper. It was like uh, gold and turquoise blue and white and like vegetables and beer steins. It was glorious. <laughs> I was like, let's just leave that. You know, it's cool. Five layers of wallpaper, okay, just slapped on top of the, of the next one. And so um, it, it was a lot of work to, to, to do that. And then, of course, now, since then, we've knocked down a wall and replaced all the cabinets and flooring and all that stuff. But here's the reality. Um, Jesus bought a fixer-upper. <laughs> and so he's coming. He will not leave any room of your soul untouched over time. So he says, I, I want, I, pr I pray that you would have power so that Christ dwells in your hearts, that you'd be rooted and grounded in love. I think of, um, I think of Jesus and the parable of, this, of the seeds. You know, he says there's some that was scattered on rocky soil and it sprung up really quickly, but it had no root in it because of the rocks, right? They're just rocks, but it just couldn't go down. And so um, it, it looked great for a little while, but then the sun rose and it scorched the plants because they had no root. They couldn't get the nourishment they, they require. See, Jesus wants you and I to be mighty oaks, not puny pines. Every tree that's fallen on my property has been a pine. <laughs> I got an oak that's like this big, this big around and that sucker ain't going nowhere, you know? This is deeply rooted. But here's the reality. In every church, in every age, as we talked about last week, there are the weak and the strong. There are also the deeply rooted and the unrooted. And sadly, uh, Paul actually, he, so he's writing this letter to the church at Ephesus or the region of Ephesus. But later, and, and so he's praying these things for the believers in Ephesus. Later, he writes a letter, uh, two letters actually, to the pastor of the church at Ephesus. His name's Timothy. And here's what he says of this same group of people. In 2 Timothy 3, he says, But understand this, that in the last days, by the way, the last days are every day since Jesus has ascended until he comes again. That's the last days, okay? No need to, like, watch the skies and the news and read Revelation. The last days are since Jesus ascended until he comes again. But understand this, that in the last days, there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, 
lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents. You thought that was normal. Mm -mm. Ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And now listen to this one. Having the appearance of godliness but denying its power. The very same people that Paul's praying for, that they would have the power of God rooted in them. Paul's now instructing their pastor, people are going to love themselves more than anyone else. They're going to love pleasure more than God. And they're going to have an appearance of godliness but deny its power. So we might ask ourselves, why is it? I've been walking with Jesus a long time or maybe a little bit of time, but I I seem to lack joy. Why do I complain so much? Why do, I, why do I lose my temper so often? Why do I seem to have no impulse control? Why am I so stinking proud and arrogant? And I think at least part of the answer is we do not truly grasp the power that lives inside of us. And so Paul's prayer here is for a greater capacity to comprehend. So he says here, that you'd be strengthened with power through the Spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, verse 18, may have the strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. How wide is the love of Jesus? How far is it from the east to the west? Which is what he said, your sins are cast as far as the east is from the west. When Jesus was nailed to the cross, his arms were spread wide open as if to say, all are welcome here. That the message, the good news of, of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus extends to every tribe and tongue and nation and people group and language on the face of the planet. How long is the love of Jesus? When when did it start? Before the foundations of the world. (laughs) When will it end? Never. Till eternity future. He loves us. Romans 8 says, nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ. If you, have, if you are clinging to Jesus and, in, and Jesus alone, even if it's by the thinnest little straggly strand of faith, you belong to him and nothing can ever separate you from his love in Christ. That is a fact. How high is the love of Jesus? All the way to the heavens. In John chapter 17, Jesus said, Father, I pray that that they would be one as you and I are one. I pray that they would be with me where I am and that they would experience the glory that we experience. He is calling, he is praying that we would be caught up and, and, and taste something of the glory that the, the Trinitarian God experiences among themselves. How deep is the love of Jesus? 
on the cross, Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He died. And sometimes we read the Apostles' Creed, it says he descended to hell. He loved you so much, he went all the way to hell to get you. Do you know this kind of love? A love that he says here surpasses knowledge. Do you know the love that surpasses knowing? <laughs> Doesn't even make sense, right? Like, what, how do you know something that's beyond knowledge? It's because there's knowing and then there's knowing. You know what I'm saying? So we had, we had a friend, uh, some friends in town over the weekend, and um, we're talking about places to go eat, you know? And so, because they're like from Ohio and there's no good food there, and so they were like, hey, what? <laughs> just kidding, just kidding. Uh, put chili on spaghetti noodles, man. What are you doing? <laughs> so we're talking about Buxton Hall and, and uh, the Chicken Palace. I don't know if you've been to the S&W Food Hall down by Pritchard Park downtown, but they got several different places, and there's a uh, Buxton does just the chicken sandwiches and the nuggets there, Buck, Buxton Chicken Palace. And so he had already seen a video. He's like, oh, I, I, I saw this video about Elliot Moss, the chef owner of Buxton and those chicken sandwiches. And I was like, yeah, they're great. They're amazing. You should try one. So he had information. Somebody told me once there's, there's three kinds of teaching. There's information, right? You get knowledge. That's cool. You get inspiration. You're, you're inspired to go do. And then there's transformation where you actually have a tangible experience of the love of God or whatever, and, and it transforms you. So he had information, saw this video about Buxton. He was inspired because we said, hey, you should go check this out. And then I took him. And he bites into that chicken sandwich and he goes, this is amazing, right? Then he knew. He knew before, but now the brother knows. You know what I'm saying? Okay, so he knew. There's a, there's a the Bible is littered with experiential language. Taste and see that the Lord is good. You might say, how? Let me just give you a little breather. It's not always those mountaintop experiences. It can be, but it's not always that last night of youth group. You know what I'm saying? Okay, it is. God often meets me. He often will meet you in the regular rhythms of everyday life, in your time, in his word, and in prayer. You, you start the day welcoming the Holy Spirit into your life. Holy Spirit, I need you. I want to see you, experience you today. You open your Bible. You read the words of God, and you ask him to speak to you through it. You pray. You listen. You, you talk to him. And oftentimes, not every time, oftentimes you read, you, nothing really happens. You close your Bible. You move on. Sometimes. Sometimes the verse leaps off the page. Sometimes you get overwhelmed with the beauty and the glory and the love of God for you. an experience. Imagine what would happen, brothers and sisters, imagine with me just for a moment, what would happen if an entire congregation grasped together the width and the length and the depth and the height of God's love for us. Imagine what it would be like to be filled together with the fullness of God. That means, that means, again, no room of your soul left untouched by the grand designer who is redesigning your life according to his image. The Lord holding nothing back of himself to us. 
equipping us with everything required for life and godliness, according to 2 Peter chapter 1. Imagine that. That would be dynamic. That would be powerful. That would be unignorable. That would be worthy of attention. One commentator put it like this. He said, we will not live as God's holy ones until we know that we are, first of all, his beloved ones. We will not treat our neighbors with mercy until we apprehend Christ's mercy towards us. We do not know anything about Christianity until we know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. Do you know the love of God for you? So finally, Paul brings us to the source of power. So you might be thinking to yourself, this all sounds awesome. I would, I mean, let's do it. Sign up, okay. Um, but how on earth is this actually possible? Because I'll tell you what, I don't see it. I feel powerless. I'm already weary. I struggle for joy. I give myself to things I know that I shouldn't, and I cannot seem to change. And you're telling me that all of us together as the church are supposed to show off the greatness and the beauty and the glory of God. You're telling me that this collection of broken, busted up sinners is God's hope for the world. And I would say, yeah, <laughs> sure is. How? How? Look at verse 20. Now to who? Him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. The source of our power is him. Okay? He's not saying more of your power. It's worthless. He is able to do far more abundantly. That is such an odd phrase in English. It's even worse in the original language. It's, it's grammatically weird. It kind of translates as super abundantly. So the NIV translates this as he's able to do immeasurably more. The New Living Translation calls it infinitely more. Okay? Um, it's like this. If our ability, even our collective ability, okay? If our collective ability is one drop of water. You get that picture in your mind, okay? Our collective ability, one single drop of water. God's ability is all the water in the oceans, which I learned this week via Google, is 321,003,271 cubic miles. The width, the breadth, the height, the depth, okay? It's unfathomable. One drop of water, that's our collective ability. The vastness of the ocean's water is the ability of God. We, we are talking about the one by whom, through whom, and for whom all things were created and in whom all things hold together. By the word of his power. We're talking about the one who hung the stars and put the planets and the, and the galaxies in their places and who also controls every speck of dust that you see in a sunbeam. 
Not one atom moves to the left or the right outside the power of our God. We're talking about the God who parted the Red Sea so that his people could go across on dry land. We're talking about the God who made the wall at Jericho fall by a trumpet. We're talking about the God who made the sun stand still so that his people could earn victory. We're talking about the God who came into the world to live as the ultimate human, fully obeying the Father in every way, fulfilling every righteous requirement of God's law because we could never do it. We're talking about the one who on the cross took the collective train wreck that is humanity on his shoulders, bore all of the evil and the stupidity and the foolishness of our choices and decisions on himself, and it killed him. We're talking about the God who three days later walked out of the grave because he conquered death and reversed the effects of the curse for those who had trust in him with empty hands of faith. We are talking about the God who brings dead souls to life and who will return again to destroy the works of the evil one and make all things new for his glory and our good. So hear me, our greatest need will never reach the bottom of his divine ability. He is able to do immeasurably more than all we could ask, which is a lot, right? All you with like two and three-year-olds know they can ask a whole lot. All they do is ask all day long. Mostly why questions, but they ask. Think, what greater ask, what greater question could we ask of God than forgive me, save me? And yet he did immeasurably more than that. He did infinitely more than that. He not only forgave us of our sin, but he credited us with his righteousness, which is like he didn't just get the bank account back to zero and pay the debt. He gave us infinite resources on top immeasurably more. But he says he's also able to do immeasurably more than all that we could think. How creative are you? <laughs> okay, so, so take everything you could ever think of and heap that on top of everything you could ever ask. And he's still able to do far more than ever entered our minds or hearts or came from our lips. But then he says, according to the power at work, where? Within us. <laughs> He's able to do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or imagine according to the power at work within us, within his people, within the church. Again, same power that raised Christ from the dead is at work in us. Last week, we talked about welcoming the weak, right? The weak in faith, the weaker brother, the, those who um, struggle with sin, those who, uh, those who give themselves to things and don't even know any better, right? And we, and we think that sounds all well and good. Like we want to be a people who are welcoming and we should have open arms and open doors and open lives and open you know, checkbooks and, and, and open calendars and open homes. And yet, when people walk in with their baggage... With their problems, we go, oh man, <laughs> this is going to be a lot of work. 
And in our worst moments, we think to ourselves, can't we just welcome people who already have their act together? (laughs) It'd be so much easier. Until we realize it's the love of God that reminds us that we don't have our act together either. (laughs) And yet, the, the height and the depth and the width and the breadth of the love of God for us. We are the weak. And yet, it is, it is his grace that is sufficient for us. It is his power that is made perfect in our weakness. And so we receive his grace with empty hands and we are filled with the fullness of God. Him going room by room by room in our souls, even those darkest little corners that no one touches, and he redesigns them into his image. He leaves his mark because he's taking up residence in our souls. He fills us with the fullness of God for the good of the world. So that, I mean, this is how the the passage ends, so that he would be glorified, such that the good news of the finished work of Jesus flows from generation to generation to generation to generation to to generation for the glory of God forever and ever. Amen. The source of power is God alone, and we need his power. So as I wrap up, um, I've got three questions I'm going to put on the screens for us here just to consider for a moment, Um, and then we're going to move into our time of response, and I'll walk you through that in a second. But as these questions come, you can write them down as they come. You can take a picture of the screen when they're all up. Um, Some of them are for you. Some of them are for us. um, But I would would just ask you to, to take these, think on them now, and then maybe take them with you. Um, as you go from here. But here's the first question. Where do I most sense my need to be strengthened with God's power? And of course, we could answer everywhere, and that's a fine answer, you know, but there are probably particular areas of our lives that we can identify, whether it's relationally. What? Okay, I was... Some of us just have a problem understanding the love of God for us, which is what this whole passage is about, right? We... We read verses that say things like, we are the beloved of God, and we do not believe it. We have a struggle from getting from here to here with those truths. And that's where you might need God's power to strengthen you to actually grasp onto the love of God for you, who you are in him, your identity as forgiven and freed and a child of God because of Jesus. For others of you, it might be in, in relational connection with others. And um, I, mean, I don't know what you're dealing with, right? But there are places where we sense we need a strength that we do not have. We need a power that has to come from outside of us because we don't have it in us. Where do I most sense my need to be strengthened with God's power? Second question, how might a greater experience of Jesus' love help me to live more for his honor? So if we're honest with ourselves and we read back through 2 Timothy three, we'll see that we often are the lovers of self, the proud, the arrogant, the brutal, those who love pleasure more than God, who have an appearance of godliness but deny his power. And so oftentimes we live for ourselves because we don't understand how deeply we're loved by God. You mean to tell me uh, that God loves my self-exalting, self-boasting, self-sufficient, self-focused self? (laughs) What? Yeah, so much that he sent his only son to die in my place 
for all of my selfishness that I might become his child. And it's that kind of experience of the love of God that actually brings us low. It humbles us. Boy, do we need it. How about a greater experience of Jesus' love? Not just knowing about his love, but tasting and seeing that Christ loves me. How can that help me to live more for his honor, for his glory? Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, I used to live for myself until I realized that he lived and died for me. Now I live for him. And then finally, this is more of a question for us. If he is able, and he is, to do far more than we could ask or think, then what do we need him to do? And so I'll give you a couple things, and maybe you just be committing to pray, praying these things with us. Um, w- would you pray that the Lord would fill this congregation with the fullness of God to the degree that Jesus becomes non-ignorable in our lives and in our city. That, that we would be so transformed by him, so in love with him, so changed by him, it would be obvious, non-ignorable, that Jesus is alive, that he's at work in our lives and through this congregation. Would you pray that, that we'd be filled with the fullness of God so that Jesus is non-ignorable? Um, I'm going to ask you to pray for this as well. It is becoming more clear that our days are numbered in this facility. We have an, at least a year left on this lease, um, but it is feeling as though, seeming as though, there is not a future long-term uh, here in this, in, in, on this property, um, and every family needs a home. And so would you pray that God would provide, that he would do far more abundantly beyond we ask or imagine, and providing a home for this congregation? That as we step into the future, maybe not even knowing where we go from here, I mean, I'll preach under a tree, I don't, I don't care. I don't know that you would like that, but I'll do it, Okay. All I need is about this much uh, to step up on, and I'll yell at you for an hour. <laughs> would you pray that God would provide a, a home that he would do far more abundantly beyond all we could ask or think? Would you pray that God would give clarity and wisdom to our leaders, to our elders, to our staff? We have some exciting things happening I can't quite talk about yet, but hope to make some announcements in the near future about some amazing stuff that God is up to. Um, but as we make decisions, as we navigate the, an unknown future, would you pray that God would give us clarity and wisdom to honor him um, and to step into places that might stretch us all, but for his glory and for our good? And finally, would you pray for the next generation of disciples? And, and I don't actually mean our children and students. Okay, here's what I mean. There are people waking up all over our city this morning without a thought of God on their mind. Some of them may be hungover. Some of them might have woken up next to a stranger. Many of them woke up incredibly lonely. And others woke up just feeling dull because their life seems to just exist without any meaning or purpose. And I'm praying that the Holy Spirit's power through us, his people, would cut through the the apathy and the dullness and the plurality of spirituality 
and the coolness of our city that can choke us at times and would just reveal who Jesus really is to people and that we would be a community who welcome them, those who are weak, who welcome them, who love them, who bring them into this family, introduce them to Jesus and that they begin a journey with Christ and are transformed by his power. Would you join me in praying for that next generation of disciples? people who are right now far from God, but he knows their name and is drawing them to himself. Okay, we're going to move into our time of response uh, now. I'm going to pray for you, and then uh, we're going to open up the communion tables. We're going to have a moment of silence. Uh, just where else do you go in this world that's just quiet? So we're going to have a moment of quiet to reflect, to pray, to prepare hearts for communion. And then when I come to the table, the tables will be open. There are two stations at each table. Uh, there are, they are all gluten-free wafers, and then there's juice and wine, whatever your conscience allows. But we take communion here weekly as a reminder of the gospel, as a, as a weekly reminder that, that God sent Jesus to live in our place, a perfect sinless life, to die in our place for our sin and to rise again from the dead so that we could be forgiven and welcomed into his family. And so we come to these tables in repentance. We come in faith. We come in thanksgiving. If you're not a Christian, you can stay in your seats during this time. But for those of us who have given our lives to the Lord, we want to come in remembrance and in thanksgiving. Maybe, let's try this this time. If you line up, will you line up to the left side of each aisle and leave the right side open so as people make their way back, we don't have a traffic jam. Can we just try that to the left side? Okay. We're going to have a moment of silence. When I come up, tables will be open. You can come through. Uh, if you are um, a member here and want to give, there are black boxes in the back. If you're new and want to be known, connect car prayer requests. Those can also go in those black boxes. Uh, and then we're going to sing and respond to the Lord through song, a couple announcements, and then we're going to baptize some folks. Um, parents, if you want to dip out a little bit early to go get your kids so that they can all kind of be down here for baptism, that would be great. And um, we'll go from there. Father, I thank you so much for these men and women. Thank you for an opportunity to open your word. And I thank you for what you have revealed to us through Ephesians chapter 3. I pray that you would be glorified now, Lord, as we do business with you, as we think on this passage, as we repent, as we give our lives in trust to you more and more, that you would do what only you can do in our souls. And that now as we respond through communion, through giving, and through singing, that you would be glorified and that you would fill us with joy in your presence. I pray now, Lord, as we move into baptizing new um, believers, that you would be honored in that and that our community would rejoice uh, in these affirmations of new life uh, that we get to celebrate. And in all these things, would you be honored. We love you. We thank you. We praise you for all the good things that you have given, and we ask your blessing in the name of Jesus. And by the power of your spirit, we pray. Amen.